Hello and welcome, everyone. My name is Daniel. And I'm Nick. And this is the first episode in our three-part series on the history of science education. That's right. Now, today, when we think about learning science, we often think about the classroom. In fact, when we say the phrase learning science, you might have flashbacks to figures on a chalkboard or your high school chemistry lab, for example. Definitely. But besides the classroom, there are plenty of other ways that people learn science. And these ways have evolved throughout recent history. Our podcast is all about examining these different methods of science education. In our third and final episode, we'll be looking at YouTube as a platform for science education. In our second episode, we'll focus on science in the classroom. But in this first episode, we'll be jumping back a few hundred years. Back in the late 1700s, science as we understand it today was really starting to take off. People were forming theories, performing experiments in their personal laboratories, and publishing the results. But when people wanted to share their findings with a broader audience, they would often rely on public demonstrations. These demos allowed people to convey their research in an exciting and easy-to-understand way. Science demonstrations were hugely popular in Enlightenment-era Europe and beyond. Since 1825, for example, the British Royal Institution has incorporated science demos into its annual Christmas lecture series, viewing these demonstrations as a great way to get the public engaged with science. And in the 1700s, science demos were typically performed in classrooms or even out in public. With tools like pendula and air pumps, experts could demonstrate all sorts of scientific principles across various different disciplines. But perhaps no scientific subfield was as conducive to demonstration as that of electricity. We recently sat down with Dr. Sarah Schechner, curator of Harvard's collection of historical scientific instruments. She told us about one science demonstration device in the collection of instruments that was particularly explosive. We were hoping you could start by just telling us, you know, what is uh, the collection of historical scientific instruments for people who, who might not know? Sure. So the collection of historical scientific instruments has about 25,000 scientific instruments dating from about the 16th century, maybe a few earlier stragglers, up through into the 20th century. And a lot of the material was acquired by Harvard for researcher teaching. And other objects in the collection have come to us through gifts. We collect everything from instruments of astronomy, physics, biology, experimental psychology and mathematics, and uh, navigation and surveying instruments, and so a whole raft of things. Are any of these objects from the collection still in use today? We have sometimes used them for classes or an event. To use the same telescope, for example, that John Winthrop used to look at the transit of Venus. We pulled it out for the most recent transit of Venus in 2004. There was one particular object from the collection that Nick and I wanted to ask you about, and that's the Thunder House. We know that Thunder Houses were used in electricity demonstrations, but we wanted to ask you what exactly is a Thunder House and what is it meant to demonstrate? 
Sure. So a Thunder House is a little model house. It can sometimes be a profile of like the front of a church or a building with parts that stack on each other. And then the roof is a separate unit that can be sit on top of the walls and has a steeple. And at the top of the steeple, you'll have a brass rod going up, which is your lightning rod. And then it comes down its wire along the side of the house to an eyelet where one can put a chain of metal that will touch the ground, to literally ground the lightning rod. And you put gunpowder in the house and you can run a bunch of experiments. If you have everything grounded, if you use your electrical machine, it's charged, bring it near the point on the lightning rod, you'll see nothing happen. So you do that and you, everything is fine. Now you, you remove the, you break the ground by removing this little block. Everything's still the same, the gunpowder in the house. And you charge up your electrical machine, you bring the discharging rod over to the lightning rod on the Thunder House, and now you'll get a big spark and the whole house will blow up and the roof flies off and the sides collapse and there's a big flash of light and big noise and everything is you know, in pieces. It's a demonstration very readily of the nature of lightning rods, how they need to be grounded, and why you shouldn't store, uh, you know, gunpowder in your church. Uh, <laughs> unless you have lightning rods up on top. When did scientific demonstrations like the Thunder House first become popular? In the 18th century, the idea of lecture demonstrations really gets off the ground for the first time. And it's part of a courtly culture and middle class culture to go to see these demonstrations, as well as in the scientific meetings, they would do an experiment or demonstration in front of a number of witnesses who would discuss what's happening, what, what if we did this, what if we did that. Harvard was very early in engaging in these kind of demonstrations in the class of natural philosophy, much earlier than most other contemporary colleges as part, but one of the reasons was that the best way to educate students is to entertain them. And the Thunderhouse really would wake up a class, you know, who doesn't like to blow up things? And I think it becomes more memorable too it's really a radical change to have that, the educational demonstration that comes about in the 18th century. Because prior to the 18th century, all classes were lecture and recitation. Professor get up, he'd lecture. People would then take notes. Then they would recite back their notes from memory or whatever to the tutor. And then it'd be another day of that. It's a it's a much richer experience. Well, that's everything for me, yeah. Yeah, thank you for agreeing to, uh, to meet with us. This was wonderful. No problem. Learning about the Thunder House gives us a great understanding of what 18th century science demonstrations were like. But, of course, science demonstrations continue to be a powerful tool for the teaching of science into the modern day. That's right. 
Today we can find science demos in museums, as part of classroom curricula, or even on television and the internet. But while the platforms are different, not everything has changed since the 1700s. In fact, some modern science demonstrations are strikingly similar to the ones that were performed hundreds of years ago. To find out why, let's listen to Daniel Rosenberg and Wolfgang Ruckner of Harvard's Natural Science Lecture Demonstrations Group. What is the Harvard Natural Science Lecture Demonstrations Group? What is it that you guys do? We were, we were, I would say because I'm retired now, we were a group of uh, four scientists that provide lecture demonstrations for classrooms and lectures. We develop demonstrations, we come up with new ones, we uh, work with faculty to provide uh, new demonstrations. What's your favorite science demonstration that you've ever either either designed or, or gotten the chance to execute? I would say the, the flame tornado, where we take a um, turntable and um, put a three-inch diameter can in the center of that full of isopropyl alcohol. When you start to spin the turntable, you get this sort of rotating chimney effect where the, the flame from the cup just rises up in a, in a tornado. We recently spoke to Dr. Sarah Schechner about thunderhouses, and we learned that you guys use a replica thunderhouse in some of your demonstrations. Can you tell us more about how that got started? We got a call from the Museum of Historical Scientific Instruments, and they said, do you have this thing, this thunderhouse? And I said, of course we do. We use it every, you know, we use it a couple times a year. And they sort of went, that's a little bit historic right mm -hmm. now. We, we need to take that off your hands. I said, well, we still need to have a Thunder House. And we have a shop in the back. So I said, you know what? This would be a really interesting project. So I, I had the privilege of putting on my white gloves and bringing measuring instruments to the museum. This is a Thunder House from the 18th century that Ben Franklin actually used. And I made three uh, Thunder Houses uh, based, based on those drawings. I just want to say that the collection of historical scientific instruments has always been an inspiration to me because of the craftsmanship and beauty of these experiments that uh, you know, they're, they're works of art, not just tools uh, of science. How much, how much wear and tear does, a, um, does the Thunderhouse go through, like during a typical demonstration? Like, how, how much can you get out of one? You can get a lot. Actually, the, the most wear and tear that it gets is if the, the roof pops up and falls on the floor. The, you know, the, the explosion is on the order of popping a balloon. Right, so things kind of go poof. A little bit of cloud of smoke and a little bit of fire shooting this way. It, it's impressive looking, but it's not a particularly dangerous demonstration. Still, how do people react to seeing that? There's usually a gasp because it it just it just poof goes, and the uh, the smell of black powder is all sulfurous. That's it's very dramatic. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Daniel, before we were recording, you were talking a little bit about what it's like to do 
demos over Zoom uh, these days. Could you talk a little bit about that, uh, how that's different or the same? It's funny. Um, there are a lot of similarities. You know, I, I had thought that it might not, you know, it might not have the immediacy. In the normal times, we would set up cameras on things that were sort of too small to see for the rest of the lecture hall. Um, now we set up cameras for everything and they plug into the laptop and, you know, we can switch back and forth to the camera feed for the Zoom. Unmute myself. We have a conversation about, you know, what's happening. It's actually a live experience. Um, and, I, and I think it's more powerful than I expected it to be. Why do you think that uh, science demonstrations are important to the process of learning science? Because uh, Wolfgang, you mentioned it's not something you even had in your undergraduate career. Right, right. Yeah. And I wish I did. I wish I did. I think they are just a wonderful teaching tool uh, if used properly. You get to see something live in person, not just a photograph in your textbook or a slide up on the screen or just a drawing. You get to see this real thing. And then depending on how it's used, uh, it's used most effectively if instead of just showing it, seeing how it works, you get the audience involved, you know, this interactive learning. You might also turn it into a um, problem to solve. You know, there might be something about it that you can calculate, or if you can't do it, what's missing? What extra thing do you need to do to be able to figure out something else? So it can really be a powerful tool, not just as something that's fun to see, but something that you can really um, learn from. Demonstrations really are an exciting way to learn science. Do you have any science demos that stick out in your mind, Daniel? The the hammer and the feather Galileo uh, experiment. I think it's something that he had theorized about, but was never able to do because it requires to be done a in a vacuum. A vacuum, right? yeah. I know that one of the Apollo missions did it on the moon. Really? Um, I didn't yeah. know they did that there. Yeah. Oh, I, sick. I think that's part of the reason it's so famous is um, one of the Apollo missions brought a bunch of experiments, and one of them was they brought a feather and a hammer, and they drop them. This is all televised, so like millions of people are watching this, I think. And yeah, they land right at the same time, and they say something like, Galileo was right on TV. <laughs> and now, once, we, once we have our moon base or a moon colony, there's going to be a big open market for science demonstrators. That's <laughs> true, yeah. But in our next episode, we'll consider the more traditional way that people learn about science. So tune in for episode two, Science in the Classroom, which will be led by myself and our third host, Harrison. We hope to see you there.